in the last few weeks, we've been talking about a bold and simple prayer. A bold and yet simple prayer uh, that says this, God, give me one person to share your love with today. And that if you were to pray this prayer intentionally, like if you were to actually uh, take this prayer, um, mean it, expect God to answer because he, he wants to answer this prayer. He wants to, uh, to give you a person to share his love with. Like if you took it in, in your chair time each morning, just prayed this prayer and, and had a, an expectant lookout for the opportunities that God might have for you, that God would actually answer uh, this prayer. The prayer is this, God, give me one person to share your love with today. God, just give me one person to share your love with today. And I love it every time we, kind of in between gatherings, I always get a few people that come up to me and say, I'm praying for one. I'm like, that's awesome. I'm glad you're praying for one. You're like, every, I pray for one, and every single time a telemarketer calls, I, I give him it. I give him everything. I give it to him. <laughs> I said, all right, man, praise God. That's awesome. I love it. Like, I get three or four a day. Like, it's incredible. It's like this opportunity to share God's love with somebody. And, and it's, it's fun because praying for one is fun. It's simple, but it's deep. It's praying for one is, is a way that kind of encompasses the entire Christian life because you have to have a heart of worship to care about what God wants and you have to have a heart of community because you have to relate well with people and, and interact with them. Uh, you, have to, you have to have a heart of mission because you have to see that God's kingdom is expanding and growing through his church and that you're a part of that. Like you have to have all three of these uh, and you're engaging all three of these to pray for one and he wants to answer this prayer, this simple prayer. And today, we're going to be uh, kind of looking at it from, a, from a, one of my favorite passages in the Bible, one of the most challenging passages for me, um, uh, just how to live a life according to the Spirit of God. Um, but we're going to be in Acts chapter 16. And so if you want to grab the Bibles that were on your seat there, you can go with me to page 921, um, I believe it is, 921. <clears throat> or you can follow along on your phone, um, or you can just listen, um, or you can get up and get me a cup of coffee if you want to, Whatever you, whatever's next for you, it's fine. Uh, but Acts uh, 16, page 921, we're going to be today. Uh, but how many know praying for one, if you want to pray this prayer, is actually risky? Praying for one is a risky prayer uh, because what you're doing is you're moving um, from just relating to people to asking them about someone and something. You're moving from relating to asking. It's, a, it's like a big step because when you pray for one, you're expecting that God's going to answer this prayer because he really does want to answer it. And you're moving from simply knowing people to just looking to see how you can share God's love with them. It's a big step. It's a risky step. And you're going to find yourself in spots that maybe you're not used to finding yourself in. Maybe you're going you're gonna to engage with people in ways that maybe you've never engaged with them before. People that you love, that you know, that you've known for years are now all of a sudden the ones that God gave you to share his love with in a new way. So praying for one is risky. And if you're going to take this risk, if you're going to be a, a part of God's mission and, and jump in with this big risk, um, then there's really a, a few different ways that you can do that. But uh, I have a friend named Steve Carter, and uh, he wrote a book called This Invitational Life. Um, and he talks about uh, the stuff that we're going to talk about today really well in, in that book if you want to buy it. Um, but but he, he simply asks this question, is, what is your risk temperature? If you want to jump into this risk temperature, if you want to jump into the risk that God has, what is your temperature to actually answer to the risk? Like, how are you going to engage with the mission of God? And so there's, there's really just a, a little, you know, just some levels that you can be at. But um, if you're a one on the risk temp, uh, scale, then you have a seeking friend. You have a friend that's a, not a Christian. 
And you're like, all right, we're in, we're good. Typically, we, everyone has someone that hasn't heard of the love of God yet or just doesn't know how it applies to them or why they should even care about it. But, but typically, you're one on the scale if you have a seeking friend. Two, um, you invite family and friends to Christmas and Easter. Um, that's like a two on the scale. Like you, just, you, you can say, hey, you know what? Why, everyone kind of already finds it culturally acceptable to come to church on Christmas and Easter. And there's like this crazy stat that 90, 95% of people will say yes if you invite them to come to your gathering on Easter weekend or on Christmas weekend and, and just have them come with you. It's just crazy. Th- but you, but you definitely a two on the scale. Three is if you pray for opportunities. So if you pray for one in the morning, you're just developing this risk temperature. You're, de- you're kind of rising on the scale of being used by God. And so you have a three, you're praying for opportunities. Uh, four is, is you're sharing content on how to, uh, on, how to uh, on, on Jesus and the church on social media. Now, social media today is communication. Like, we think about it sometimes in this different realm, but like digital communication is the way people are communicating today. In fact, a lot of you are looking at the Bible on your phone. That's digital communication. That's, you are, are engaging with people on a personal level on social media. It's just really, it's a big phenomenon, one of the biggest communication changes probably since the printing press. And, and you, when you share on social media and when you talk about Christ on social media, you are, in fact, uh, uh, throwing stuff out there uh, about Jesus, so it's it's really uh, incredible, and you are you're and it's communicating from yourself. It's it's a great a great way to start uh, uh, participating in the mission of God. Number five is you're inviting to a weekend gathering, and so you're kind of you know if you have a temperature or or you would like to start to engage with this. Invite someone to a weekend gathering that's not a holiday or that's like not an event. Just say, hey, come with me on a weekend and, and, and see what's going on at the church. And a lot of people, if you see this like an event, like you're inviting them over your house or you're inviting them to some movie or something to do outside, it, it very, very rarely will you get a no. People typically expect or just try to, ex- uh, try to engage with this if you intentionally ask them and care about them in doing it. Six is if you're looking for spirit-led conversations and if you're going into establishments or into your workplace and you just have like this radar, like God, you're gonna use me in here. You're gonna use me to do something today. I, I see it uh, many weeks at the Hope Center where they're on Saturdays. We, we see people that, that are volunteering. They just kind of have this radar up, like I'm a part of this. I'm a part of something. God's gonna use me to do something. And maybe you in your workplace, or maybe you go to a, a Starbucks or a cafe, or, or everyone goes to Dunkin', right? Like, if, instead of just standing in line, but you're there with, like, this radar, God, how, who would you want to use me to, what would you want to use me to do today and, and engage with people that way? Seven is you're sharing your story with seekers. Um, like, everyone who meets Jesus has this, has this story. It's the story of who you were before Christ, then things changed because you met him, and then now what does your life look like because you met Jesus? It's an Acts 9 story. It's a story of, of, of someone meeting Christ. Like, this is who you were before Christ, and this is now who you are because of Christ. And if you share your story, you say, hey, I need to tell you a story about someone that I love, someone that's changed my life, um, that you're, you're actually starting to, you're going to develop this in a major way. Number eight is you have intentional time with seekers. Uh, I, I talk about this a lot. As a pastor, I have a hard time sometimes finding myself outside of Christian circles. And so what I do is I camp myself in places where I'm probably the only Christian there. So I do work at cafes, and I do things in different parts of the community so I can just be around people that don't know Jesus and, and begin to, to engage with them in, in some meaningful ways. 
Um, and then number nine and 10 is if you're leading people to Christ actively, whether it's monthly or weekly. And the more and more you engage in the mission of God, the more and more your risk temperature will begin to develop. If you, even if you're a one today, you just have a Christian friend, you begin to invite them to Easter, you're going to see and develop this idea that God is using you to become a part of the restoration of all things. He's, he's engaging with you. And, and, and what I love about this is that there's a story that Paul has uh, in the book of Acts, and his, Luke wrote the book of Acts, and, uh, this, the, uh, and he, what he did is he, is he put a bunch of these stories together. He almost did it like a reporter. Like he went through and followed the, the life of certain disciples all throughout the first century and began just engaging their stories and writing them down and putting them together. There's actually six sections in the book of Acts. The book of Acts is broken down into six parts. And it's the story of, the, of Jesus and the acts of the disciples because of the Spirit engaging with them and, and because of the Spirit of God really uh, empowering them to be his witnesses and to see the things of God take place on earth. You see it breaking up from Jerusalem, starting in the, in the city of Jerusalem, and it's a journey all the way to the city of Rome. Now, Rome was the empire that oversaw and controlled the entire world at that point. And the, the journey of Christ goes from this city all the way to the ruling empire. And you see that the story of Jesus is actually the one with this life-giving force, way more than anything else, even the most powerful entity at the time, that Jesus is more powerful uh, than Rome. And so it's this story, it's breaking down. And right here in Acts 16, where we're at, it's one of those breaks where, where instead of it just being a regional thing that they're engaging with, it begins to break outside of that to what they would have understood it to be the entire world. So Acts 16 is where we see the gospel breaking out into the entire world. And it's, and it's, it's more powerful than the most powerful empire, than the most powerful ruler. It's more life-giving than and someone with the most amount of money and someone with the most amount of uh, power. It's, it's, it's this thing that engages everyone at the heart level. You see the gospel is breaking out into every part of the world. And Paul is a part of starting this journey outside of the church into this, uh, this global phenomenon. And in Acts 16, we see a part of his journey. And so today we're going to look at four values of evangelism, four values that will help you take the risk of evangelism uh, from Paul's story today. So if you go to verse 6 in Acts 16, go to verse 6 in Acts 16. It says this, Next, Paul and Silas traveled through the area of Phrygia and Galatia because the Holy Spirit had prevented them from preaching the word in the province of Asia at that time. Then coming to the borders of Mysia, they headed north to the province of Bithynia. But again, the spirit of Jesus did not allow them to go there. So instead, they went on through Mysia to the seaport of Troas. Half of seminary education is learning how to just pronounce these names. <laughs> that night, Paul had a vision. A man from Macedonia in northern Greece was standing there pleading with him, come over to Macedonia and help us. So we decided to leave from Macedonia at once, having concluded that God was calling us to preach the good news there. Verse 11, we boarded a boat at Troas and, and sailed straight across to the island of Samothrace, and the next day we landed at Neapolis. From there we reached Philippi, a major city of that district of Macedonia and Roman colony. And we stayed there several days. On the Sabbath, we went a little way outside the city to a riverbank where, where we thought people would be meeting for prayer. And we sat down to speak with some women who had gathered there. 
One of them was Lydia from Thyatira and a merchant of expensive purple cloth who worshipped God. As she listened to us, the Lord opened her heart and she accepted what Paul was saying. She was baptized along with other members of her household and she asked us to be her guests. If you agree that I am a true believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my home. And she urged us until we agreed. And so we see this story is really right after, you know, verses one through five is a summary statement of the activity of the church. It's saying, okay, here's what the church is doing. It's active, it's moving, it's, it's getting outside of itself. It's actually developing. The kingdom of God is expanding. It's expanding even to the edges of what they knew to be the earth at the time. And so they're getting up and out of all of that, and God is working in them. And then you have this really natural passage. It's essentially reading like Paul's Southwest uh, boarding pass, right? I mean, it's not the most amazing thing in the world. It's the most natural thing in the world. He's just going from place to place to place and just asking that God might use him in a certain way. But what I love about this is that it shows us a few values. And so if you want to engage in this risk temperature and you want to up your risk temperature a little bit, then there's four values that you can live. Number one, the first value out of the story is you can live, you live deeply with Jesus. Live deeply with Jesus. See, Paul's journey is a solid mix between strategic planning and a keen sensitivity to the spirit of God in his life. Now, if you, look, if you read the rest of the New Testament, you see Paul's like, hey, I gotta go there. I gotta develop those people there. I gotta go over there and engage with the leaders. I gotta talk to them over there. I gotta plan this out. I gotta plant 14 churches over there. And you see just like oozing with strategy, oozing with plans, oozing with what God might have him do and in growing and expanding the kingdom. But even in these little natural moments, he has this keen sensitivity that God might want him to move direction just a little bit. And so he goes to this place and he says, okay, God, you know, you don't, no, no, we can't stay here. Okay, we'll go to the next place. And, and everyone in this room would have been frustrated after just one of those, right? He went from city to city to city. He went to like seven or eight cities. And finally, God says, you know what? I want you to go to Macedonia, which, by the way, wasn't the city he was in. It was across the, the lake or the sea from where he was. Like, you just got to get over there. No big deal. A lot of ships crash and sink, like, right around now, but you'll be fine. Just get on a ship, and you'll go out over there. And he heads up. He just has this sensitivity to, to the spirit of God in his life. He said, all right, I'm going to show up here, and I'm going to do this. I'm going to show up here, and I'm going to do this. Okay, God, you don't want me here. You want me over there. Okay, God, you don't want me over here. You want me over here. And he just ends up in a spot until he finds the place that God is going to use him in. And in order to do this, in order to have the sensitivity, you have to know Jesus. See, what we do often is we take this evangelism thing and we separate it from discipleship. Like it's something that disciples do if we have time. Like maybe if we want to try something new, we might want to step into an evangelistic idea. Or maybe we just leave evangelism to people who have the gift of evangelism. Or we just let the pastor do it because he's better at it. And we get into a spot where we are in, kind of just forfeiting our responsibility, or forfeiting our idea that evangelism is discipleship. That if you are understanding and knowing and you're tasting the goodness of God, if you, if you are getting to understand the depth of God's grace for you, that, that Jesus is not just an idea, but he's a person for you. 
And the more and more and more you get to grow and get to know him and you expand and take steps and become more like him, the more that his love that you're so freely lavished in will flow out of you into other people. Like that is discipleship. And sometimes we, we think discipleship is sitting back and learning and engaging our minds and that's certainly part of it. But really, the more and more and more you taste of the goodness of God, the more it has to go somewhere. It has to flow out of you. It has to flow out of you. The more you receive God's love, the more it comes out. We have to understand what that looks like for us. How does the love of God flow out of us? What does the fruit look like. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. John 15 is, is this, Jesus tells a story that we are in Christ. He is our home, that we're grafted into the branch, that he is our life source, and we produce fruit because his life is flowing through us. And the more we live deeply with Christ, the more this has to happen. It just has to naturally take place. Evangelism is discipleship. It is and so the more we spend out, the more it'll come out of us. And so we can't separate the two. Because here, Here's what Jesus says, like literally right at the beginning of his sermon. Uh, the first sermon that Jesus ever preaches is the Sermon on the Mount. He, he talks in Matthew 5 where he says this. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. Again, another example of Jesus being extremely caring for everybody, right? You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. See, when I was growing up, man, if you were the salt, you were the preservation of the culture. Ever many hear, anyone hear this before? You are the preservation and morality is the, what you're establishing on earth and you're living the right way and you're doing everything. And you know what? That's certainly a part of it. You know what salt also does? It adds taste. It adds taste. And you know, what, you, know what, you know, we need some salty Christians not to just tell everyone how they're screwing up in life, but like we need some salty Christians to go around into the world and actually add some fun and joy into the cultures that we live in. Add some taste to it. Put some flair in there. We need people that are adding life to things. You know, light is when we say Jesus' burden is light, we need some people that are going to be salt and light to take the burdens off people because a lot of times, man, as Christians, we make it so heavy for people. We make it so heavy for people. And you know that the more and more and more you live deeply with Jesus, and the more and more and more you get to know him, the more and more and more you taste of his grace and of his mercy and his kindness. You know that. And it's like we like, kind of go out there and we got to tell everyone how they're doing it wrong. But in all reality, sometimes we just need to go add the life and the joy to it. Maybe you at work, everyone's going around talking negative about their boss or something like that. And you're like, you know what? I'm going to work really hard and I'm going to smile today. <laughs> the salt of the earth isn't just a defending the morality of Christianity. It's adding joy and life and, and bringing and lighting up the darkness. You ever look up underneath a rock? You ever lift up a rock? You ever gonna eat what's under a rock? Maybe if you're on Survivor, it might look like a steak, right? If you're living on an island, you haven't had any food in a while. 
but you lift up a rock, nothing good grows in the dark, right? You open that up, you're like, ugh. Light, when Jesus is actually empowering you and you're living deeply with him, you're living deeply with him, and you are be lighting up the darkness, that stuff is actually turning into a light thing, a joyful thing, an engaging thing. Unlike my preaching right now, right now. I love it. It turns into this joyful thing. And so when we live deeply with Jesus, the more and more we get to know him, the more and more that we are engaging with him, the more and more he is pursuing us and we're pursuing him and our relationship is actually growing, the more that we'll be salt and light just naturally because it has to go somewhere. It has to. And so the first thing that we, we see here, Paul just exemplifying just the natural order of his life, just him being him, not him being this like set-apart person that no one can talk to or is so holy that he's not any earthly good. He's just naturally being Paul, and he's sensitive to the Spirit of God working in his life. He's saying, I gotta go here. Oh man, it's not here, I gotta go somewhere else. I gotta go this other place, I gotta go. And in his season of figuring out what God might have for him, he finally sees the vision of a Macedonian man begging him to come. This is why I love... Uh, this is why I'm hoping that you all come to our worship night on March 25th. You know, right now we've talked about we're in a vision plan and we're figuring out what the next three to five years of our church look like. And right now we're in a season just kind of launching it. We, we've listened to over 300 people so far. Tell us your thoughts about church. Tell us your thoughts about what church looks like in Southern New England and what a church should be in Southern New England. How can we be all that God created us to be? What do you think is next for us? We've listened to over 300 people. And there's, so there's so much planning and bringing together and we're surveying and we're listening and we're trying to engage with people. We're doing all this sort of thing. But then there's this keen sensitivity to the spirit of God that we can't move forward but by his grace. And if we don't have also from planning and also praying then we're going to just be lopsided in our pursuit of God. And so, man, I just want this whole place to be full. You know what, 80% of us have kids or something like that. That's why we have childcare. That's why we have childcare. So you can bring your kids. They're gonna go have fun downstairs. We're gonna be in here pursuing God, praying that he might do something new in us as a church as we celebrate the launch of Holy Week and remembering all that Christ has done. We gotta live deeply with Jesus. Discipleship is evangelism. Evangelism is discipleship. You do all of it as you pursue praying for one. You gotta live deeply with Jesus. The next thing you gotta do, um, if you wanna value and up your wrist temperature for this, is you gotta show up with expectancy. Show up with expectancy. And so verse 11 talks about this. I love this verse. We boarded a boat at Troas and sailed straight across to the island of Samothrace, and the next day we landed at Neapolis. From there, we reached Philippi, a major city of the district of Macedonia, Roman colony. We stayed there several days. On Sabbath, we went uh, a little way outside the city to Riverbank where people were praying. You don't see that verse. I bet none of you have that verse stitched on a pillow on your bed. No one does. I bet my life on that. No one has that stitched on a pillow. Why? Because it's just normal. And he says, he shows up to this place in Philippi, and he knows people are praying somewhere. He knows that he's got to find them. He's got to find these people so that he can engage with them about the gospel. And he shows up with expectancy. He has this expectancy that God is actually going to do something where he is. 
just got this radar about it. He knows his purpose. He understands his mission. He's crystal clear about his engagement with the mission of God. And he just has this expectancy. God, you are going to use me to be salt and light here. You're going to use me to light up the darkness here. You're going to use me to have people meet you. Paul's just like naturally doing this. He's obviously like a 23 on a scale of 10 on the wrist temperature, and, and he's pursuing this. You've got to show up with expectancy. The more mature you are as a follower of Christ, if you are a growing follower of Christ, the shorter time frame there will be between when God speaks and when you obey. Mature followers of Jesus show up with expectancy, and when they get the prompting, they go. They do it. For Paul, these promptings, as he's engaging with taking a step to step to step from city to city to city, they could be inward. We don't know, the Bible doesn't tell us this, but they could be inward promptings. They could be more like prophetic utterances where someone's telling them where to go and helping him, encouraging him, and teaching him. They could be simple roadblocks, like the 14 trees we had blocking our roads the last couple weeks. They could be literally like, I can't go down the street because there's a tree there. But you see him, he's like, I just got to find it. I got to get it. I got to go somewhere. I got to engage in it. And he shows up at this expectancy. When I think about this, this idea, I think about the story of, of Moses. And Moses is at the beginning of Exodus. He's getting ready to lead the nation of Israel out of out of their slavery in Egypt. And God calls him to this task uh, when he's in a desert and he looks at a bush and he sees that it's not burning. Do anyone know this story? You guys know this story? I've heard it before. Three of us? All right, sweet, cool. (laughs) The story of Moses is is he's getting ready to lead. He sees the burning bush. And the burning bush, he noticed that the bush isn't burning. So the, the... Obviously, when you see a bush burning, it's no big deal, right? That's kind of something you expect it to happen. But when you see a bush not burning, how long do you think Moses had to stare at that bush before he realized it wasn't burning? How long do you think? A couple minutes? Like, obviously, you're walking around, oh, there's a bush on, it's in the desert, you know, things like combust when it's really hot, you know, like obviously, it's just on fire. How long do you think he had to stop and stare at this bush in order to say, hey, that's not burning, there's something weird about this bush, and then approach it with curiosity? Minutes? And the, ra- the rabbis used to teach that verse this way, that, that the burning bush wasn't a sign, it was a test, and it was a test to see if Moses could pay attention long enough to something so that he could be used by God. It wasn't a sign or a symbol, but a test. Because he knew he was going to have to keep his eyes locked on God to go through the journey that he was about to go to. Can he focus? Can he pay attention? Is he curious enough? Is he engaged enough to be able to notice something like this. And so here's the thing. Many of us, if not all of us, we have little burning bushes in every aspect of our life, but we're not stopping to look at if they're burning or not. And we got these, we got these places we go all the time. I mean, like, you have like a cafe, something outside of work. You have like a cafe or something you go to a lot, all the time. Yeah, besides Dunkin' Donuts. Don't raise your hand if you go to Dunkin' Donuts. I'm just kidding. 
No, you have places that you go to, maybe karate, uh, cafes, like places that you go every single day, maybe habitually, maybe a Cumberland Farms, or maybe you go get gas every day, I don't know. And God has literally put burning bushes everywhere, but we're just not paying attention long enough to actually engage with them as that. And so you got someone right now that sits down next to you somewhere. Maybe you're watching your kid do something. They sit down, they start talking. You're like, hey, how's life? And he goes, my marriage is falling apart. Like, whoa, all right, sweet. I just asked you how you're doing. That's... But you, you know these people because what they're doing is they're, they're dropping little hints, right? Like you can tell. Dropping little hints of like, oh, my life's not going so well. Or maybe I want a little bit more out of life. Because here's the thing. Just like the Macedonian man is pleading and begging, every single one of the people that are in your life are searching for something that they just don't know to call God yet. Every single one of them. They're looking and pleading and begging and searching for something or someone that they just haven't learned to call God yet. And we have to show up with expectancy to see this. So we have to show up with expectancy. So we live deeply with Jesus. We get to know and we taste the, and see the goodness of God. We show up with expectancy as we're a part of this and we long to look at the burning bush and see them. Third, we relate with them. We relate with people. Verse 14 talks about Paul um, and Luke. They know the details of Lydia's life. Lydia's about to receive uh, Jesus. He's about to, she's about to uh, become a follower of Christ. And they know all the details about her, probably from afterwards a little bit more. Um, but even so, like, they have to engage in the uh, details of someone's life. They're curious about who Lydia is. Lydia is this businesswoman. She becomes the leader of the, the church of Philippi. But she's a businesswoman, so she's got capacity to run things and develop people and sell things. She's got money. Purple dye was this like upper, like this upper class, upper echelon of people. If you were a seller of purple dye, you made some money. And so she, God puts her and Paul together, and they begin the church at Philippi. And in, it's through their relationship that the church of Philippi begins to grow and expand. And even later, you read the book of Philippians. And the book of Philippians is all about celebrating the friendship and the partnership that Paul has with this church, even to the point where Paul's in prison. Paul's in prison with this, and he's celebrating the church because the church is sending him food and the church is sending them money and engaging with them even while he's under lock and key. And it starts with relating well. The Greek version of that is don't be weird. When I was in high school, man, that was like my goal as a Christian. It was like, don't be weird. Just don't be weird. And I remember thinking, uh, like, the only time I ever saw Christians on TV was, like, through the wow worship, like, like commercials. Do you remember those? Like, it's the only street cred Christians get is when, like, they're singing, like, songs that no one sings anymore, even back then. I remember being like, man, like, just, I feel like it was always, like, people always have this weird understanding of Christians. They tend to be weird. No, no, don't be weird. Just be you. Be you. Man, I love when people are just themselves. And, and the more you live with Jesus and get to know him, and the more you engage with people and you show up with expectancy, the more that you're just yourself, 
more people are going to be attracted to the Spirit of God in you. They're going to be. Because you relate with them. You're engaging with them. What I love about Christianity is that it teaches us to be generous with, our, with, with, with who we are. We're generous with our time, with our money, with our open-mindedness. We're not controlling people with ourselves. We're just, we're just generous people. Not just with finances, but with our time and our spaces, our houses. We're looking to help. We're looking to serve. We're looking to engage. And that's typically when someone says, hey, there's something different about you. They're typically engaging with the generosity that Christ is shaping you in. We're generous people. So when we relate well with them, we're ourselves. And we do well. So don't be weird. Don't be weird. So number three, it's relate well with them. Number four. Lastly, risk the ask. Risk the ask. Verse 14, he says, he says literally, as they're engaging with Lydia, the Lord opens her heart. Now, what if he had just prayed with Lydia? That was it, just prayed with Lydia. Just kind of went to the gathering or just engaged with, no, but he started to risk changing from relating with Lydia to talking about who Jesus was. And it's probably the riskiest part of this whole thing. It's probably the part that we feel the most fear from. It's when we step out of ourselves, we allow the love of God to flow out of us, and we engage with them. The more we do it, the, I, I promise you, the more you'll feel like you're engaging with God. But he risked the ask. And for you, it could be risking the ask to invite them over your house, have a meal with them, share together life with them. Might be risking the invite to a church weekend or a gathering. Or maybe it's to step in and share your story about how Jesus changed your life. But we have to move from relating to asking so that we begin to engage them with the gospel. And it's a simple thing. But what I love about this is that this story is not the most, there's not the most fireworks of this story. This is literally a frustrating story to what would seem about disorganization from Paul's life. Oh, I got one here and I screwed up and I went over here and then whatever. It seems like, like there's something more going on here, but we know what this, the more going on is, but, but it seems just the most natural thing. It's like, I woke up, and I went to Stop and Shop, and then I went to Dunkin' Donuts, and then I hung out, and I had a red light for a little too much longer, and then, I, then I, I took a ride. It's like telling the story of his life, this natural story. And he bumps into a woman named Lydia that starts the church, and she becomes one of the leaders of the early church. It's kind of like the story of a man named Edward Kimball. Have you ever heard this story about Edward Kimball? Edward Kimball was a Sunday school teacher. Edward Kimball faithfully taught a group of about 15 to 20 guys, boys in high school, middle school, high school, for years. And what, what made Edward different about the way that he taught Sunday school is that, is that he would actually care about the kids outside of churches. So he'd go visit them at their various places of employment. This is like mid-1800s. And so we go to all these places, and there's one Sunday, there's a boy that came in the back row, a 17-year-old kid. You could tell, like, his grandma dragged him to church that day. He just tell, he just wasn't really interested in what he was talking about. So we visited him that week at a shoe store. 
And he was just like the local cobbler guy participating in, in culture that way. And he began to like just talk to him and talk to him about Jesus. Eventually, this 17-year-old decides, okay, I'm going to become a follower of Christ and answers the call. And Edward Kimball leads to Christ D.L. Moody, 17-year-old kid. Now, D.L. Moody just captures the fire of the gospel. It becomes this evangelist, a big evangelist. He starts Moody Bible Institute, a big college in Chicago. He starts Moody, uh, church, Moody Bible Church, this big church in Chicago. Not doing so well right now, but it's, it's coming back. They're, he, they're healing. And he starts, he preaches these crusades all over the world, thousands of people. And in the crowd one day is a man named Wilbur Chapman, Wilbur Chapman just he and he hears the story of, of the gospel. He wants to do exactly what he what he heard D.L. Moody doing. So he, so he begins preaching and he starts doing. He, he pastors churches all throughout the the Midwest and into New York and he starts pastoring churches and preaching these and preaching the gospel at these events. And in one of his gatherings one day, he, God begins to give him favor with people who are a bit more influential and a bit more powerful. Is a man named Billy Sunday a pro baseball player that hears the message of the gospel, quits his career to become a preacher and an evangelist. So Billy Sunday starts doing that, and if you read the story of Billy Sunday, he's incredible influence all throughout the country, just different times he's preaching the gospel and seeing people meet Jesus. And in that group of people one time is a man named uh, Mordecai Ham. Mordecai Ham, he meets Jesus later in his life, like after he's retired. He's a successful businessman, has a ton of money. And he decides that he wants to become a preacher. He decides that he wants to become an evangelist. And so he starts, he builds these little stages off the back of his truck, and he starts preaching to like groups of 10, 15 people. And then at night, he would hold these big events. And one time, his event went all the way to Charlotte, North Carolina. He ends up all over the, the East Coast, goes to Charlotte, North Carolina, and there's this little group of boys, like little junior high boys, and they say, you know what, we're going to go to this event and we're going to cause problems. How many have been there, right? Like, that's the only reason I want to go to that event. And there's this kid that's with the, that group of people who say, I'm going to go watch my friends get in trouble because everyone has a friend like that too, right? <laughs> I'm going to watch these kids get in trouble. And as he's watching these kids kind of cause a problem, he's listening to what Mordecai Ham is saying, and Mordecai Ham is preaching the gospel, and he begins to get gripped by it. So he goes back the next night, and Mordecai Ham begins to make the, the, the invitation. He said, won't you consider becoming a follower of Christ? And this, this middle school kid goes to the author, gives his life to Jesus. And that little boy was Billy Graham. And it's estimated that 2.2 billion people heard the gospel through Billy Graham. And it all started with a man named Edward Kimball. See, we, we think, we think this thing has to be this, this like smoke and fireworks show and display for people to meet Jesus, but it starts sometimes by faithfully teaching 20 kids and saying that there's something different about it. It's, it's, it starts with being someone like Dave Clark that says, I see this kid on the side of a, baseball, a basketball court. It starts with us just being available to be moved and shaped and changed by the Spirit of God. We don't have to have stages and lights and doing all this sort of thing. It moves simply as we go from place to place to place and we say, 
God, what might you have me do? Give me one person to share your love with today. And Jesus promises that he's going to empower you to do this. This is what he says right before he leaves the earth in Acts chapter 1. He says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be my witnesses. A lot of times we think this word witness means lawyer. And we got to argue with everyone to understand that God's right. But no, no, no. He says, I just want you to be my witnesses. Tell them your story. Tell them like how you've been changed by God and how much I matter to you and how much I love you. Telling people about me everywhere in Jerusalem, throughout Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. He's saying, you will be, I'm going to empower you to do this. And it's going to look not like a verse that you stitch on a pillow and put on your bed, but it might look like the next stop and shop run. It might look like the next Dunkin' Donuts line. It might look like the next red light. It might look like the next soccer field. It might look like the next time you're in a movie. Who knows what it might look like, but he will empower you to do that. Because the more you live deeply with Jesus and the more you show up with expectancy and the more that you have this ability to engage with people as you are right now, the more people will see the light and the glory of God. You will receive power when the Spirit comes upon you. You'll be my witnesses.